I remember uh, one of my teachers, Mr. Johnson, and he pulled me aside and he said, I need you to look up the word genocide. And I was just like, uh, genocide. And he was like, I need you to look that word up. And so he knew the kind of student that I was. He knew that I would look it up, that I wouldn't just roll my eyes and walk away. And I went home, I looked up the word and I came back to him the next day. And I said, well, I, I looked it up. Genocide is a systematic killing of a people. Um, why'd you ask him to look that up? And he said, well, what do you think is happening to you right now when you are fighting, when you are brawling, when you are getting into all the things you shouldn't get into? Um, that is another form of genocide and you are part of it. You are on the wrong side of it. Uh, and that changed me. This is the Redemptive Edge from Praxis. On this podcast, we talk to people who are building businesses and nonprofits that look at the world differently, or we would say redemptively. They're aiming to renew culture through acts of creative restoration. Rather than using people to advance their mission, they aim to bless people. And they're led by people who are not satisfied just living for themselves or even just improving themselves, but who actually aim to die to themselves so that something beautiful can happen in the world. That's the redemptive edge. It's not so much somewhere you've arrived as a journey you decide to take. And this podcast is about stories from that journey. I'm Andy Crouch, partner for theology and culture at Praxis. My guest on this episode is Derwin Sisnet. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, it's hard to give a quick bio of Derwin. He's the founder of Maslow Development, Maslow Development works to surround schools with all the elements of community that you actually need to have a really strong and thriving school. But as you're going to hear, uh, the number of places he's been and the number of things he's done along the way is kind of dizzying. In one sense, as with so many conversations with entrepreneurs, we're encountering an exceptional person. He was singled out as a kid from a tough background, as someone with tremendous gifts and promise. But what I love about Derwin is the way he has spent his life extending the kind of opportunities that came his way to more and more people and going deeper down to the root issues that either prevent kids like him from thriving or make real thriving possible. We had a few audio issues with this interview, so you're going to hear echoes of my voice at a couple of places where I wish you didn't. And I'm sorry for the distraction, but we are quite sure that the story that Derwin has to tell is worth it. Well, I would love to start with young Derwin Sisnet, if we could. Let's start at least with the education side of what you have given your life so far to, at least your work life, and how that started in childhood. When was the first time you started thinking about a good education, an excellent education? What was your context? Just take us back to, to those first moments of becoming aware this was something that mattered in some way. Yeah, so... I was born and raised in, in Queens, New York, in a neighborhood called Far Rockaway, which is a pretty rough neighborhood, really rough neighborhood, at least when I was growing up, and I think still is. But I come from a long line of educators. My family's from Barbados, and in Barbados, it, it was and still is. Education is still very important and really considered a form of currency, if you will. Uh, and so my mom and dad were both educators. Um, I have uncles and aunts and, and cousins that were educators. I remember coming from the grocery store with my mom. I had just put in 
or we had just applied for a, a school, a gifted program in New York. Uh, at the time, I think the gifted program was called the Astor Program. And I remember going in for testing and interviews. And we were just getting home from the grocery store. And my mom had the mail in her hand. And I remember it like it was yesterday. She was just about to open the door to our apartment. And she couldn't wait but to open the mail. And when she opened it, before we even got in, she just shouted for joy because I'd gotten into the program. And you know, I knew it was important uh, because I went through all the interviews, I did all the testing. I knew that meant something to my family and I knew that this was going to be meaningful for me, but just to see the joy that she had when I had gotten into this special program that I'll never forget. And I believe that was the first time that education meant something to me. So your parents were paying a lot of attention to you and to what could happen for you educationally. What shaped them to have that in mind, to be pursuing that as, as um, kind of single-mindedly and creatively as they did? Particularly when they moved into, when they moved to New York. So I was the first one in my immediate family born in America. My brother, who's older than me by three and a half years, was also born in Barbados. So when they moved to New York and they saw the the way the New York system was at the time, um, certainly gotten much better. Um, but they they were thinking, there's no way we could teach here. The the violence, the crime, and just the the state of the system. And so they actually uh, took their talents into another field and both went into um, the to Wall Street. Did the gifted program change like physically where, where you went to school? Were you in a different actual building and place than you would have been otherwise? And, and what was that early environment like? Yeah, so it, it changed in two ways. So I attended a school that was still in Far Rockaway, but there were, I think there were two gifted programs out of the I don't know how many elementary schools in the neighborhood, um, but I attended the school that was outside of my typical zone. Uh, so I actually took a bus to get there from kindergarten all the way through fifth grade. So that was one way in, in terms of the, the actual, the physical building being different um, from where my friends who lived around me um, attended. Uh, but in addition to that, the gifted program was still a subset of a school. And so there was, in essence, a, a gifted hall. Uh, and so there, from an early age, I saw how people could be separated based on just their differences. Um, and even though the difference, you would argue that for me, I would have been proud to be on the good side. Um, there was something about that that felt inequitable to me even then. There was certainly no way that I could articulate that at that age, but something wasn't right. And I think from you know, early on that created challenges for me as a kid. One of my principals in middle school, it was a similar situation. I attended a gifted program in the middle school and was on a, you know, in a different track. And for some reason, I just couldn't help but to always go to the other side. And one of my principals at that school actually said, and I don't know if this was hyperbole or not, but she said that she had never had a student at her school that was on both lists, the good list and the bad list. Um, and so I just, I couldn't help myself but to still experience the entire school. And there was something that just wasn't right about being on a track that others didn't have access to. And I, I got that feeling from an early age. Wow. So you couldn't put it into words, which is understandable, but um, what uh, you kind of sought out friends on the other side or hung out with people. How would you describe like what you did do to address that sense of discomfort that you were being singled out and kind of put in this other track? 
Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, so I had friends in both worlds, if you will. And in many cases, I was torn, right? I, I wanted to, you know, be the, the best student. I wanted to be the smartest in my class. I wanted, you know, by yards and yards and yards. And so while I wanted to be the best on that hand, I also wanted to be noticed. I wanted to, you know, fit in, not just in my track, but just in my school. And so if that meant who could box the best, who could run the fastest, then I wanted to be there. And so I found myself um, at an early age scoring really high on all my exams and then also getting in fights and also, you know, wanting to be the fastest in my school. Uh, and so again, there's this, this, this setup that happens when you're put in a track like that, that, you know, you either have to defend yourself or in my case, you're going to be on the offensive so that no one does put you in a situation where you do have to defend yourself, especially in a rough neighborhood where, you know, the, the currency isn't who's the smartest, right? It's either who's the fastest or, uh, you know, who can fight the best. But if you're in a track, a fast track, a smart track or whatever it is, you know, those rules are different. And I wanted to play by both rules, especially at that age. Wow. I think it's really powerful to describe it as like two sets of rules. And, and you really want, you were motivated to win in both games in a way and play by both sets of rules. Was there a point while you were still in the school system where that started to resolve for you, like an age at which it didn't, it wasn't so much a two-track life? Or was it that way like until the day you graduated? It was pretty much that way until the day I graduated, until until the day I left school in Far Rockaway. Um, and that was eighth grade. I, my last day of eighth grade, I had gotten into a big fight. Literally the last day of school, it was a big fight in the parking lot. And even then, I just thought I... I, I can't do this much longer. I can't. I can't want to achieve on both sides um, because there's a, a lose-lose situation there. I remember uh, one of my teachers, Mr. Johnson, and he pulled me aside and he said, "I need you to look up the word genocide." And I was just like, uh, "Genocide." And he was like, "I need you to look that word up." And so he knew the kind of student that I was. He knew that I would look it up. That I wouldn't just roll my eyes and walk away. And I went home. I looked up the word and I came back to him the next day and I said, well, I, I looked it up. Genocide is a systematic killing of a people. Um, why'd you ask me to look that up? And he said, well, what do you think is happening to you right now when you are fighting, when you are brawling, when you are getting into all the things you shouldn't get into? Um, that is another form of genocide and you are part of it. You are on the wrong side of it. And that changed me. And he, in essence, said, if I don't get my act together, then I will, one, be a victim of genocide and two, a perpetuator of it. Yeah. You know, that that was, you know, that that was eye-opening for me that that really had me step back and recognize that, one, what I was doing, it, it, there was no good end to it. I had experienced, you know, friends who had been killed at an early age. Uh, I had experienced friends who had been imprisoned at an early age. I was brushing up against all of those things. Uh, he saw that and also recognized that I had two parents that loved me. Another another funny story is Miss Adler, who was my English teacher uh, in middle school. Uh, she saw you know the same things that Mr. Johnson saw in me at the time. I was attending her class. I was you know doing well academically, but also just struggling um, socially, just getting into all sorts of trouble. And on parent teacher night. My parents came and the next day she came to me and she was so 
pleased and she had this smile on her face and she said, you know, I thought your mom and dad were going to come to school in motorcycle jackets. And and I'm just thinking, well, one, in Far Rockaway, we didn't ride motorcycles. And if you knew my parents, they probably would not be seen with a leather motorcycle jacket. But that was the perspective she had. And it, you know, that framed something different for me in terms of, you know, how kids are typecast and outcast because of, you know, how they act and and what they do. And particularly adolescents where her whole frame of my, my background and my neighborhood and my home uh, and my parents even was shifted based on what I did, um, not who I was. Uh, and, you know, from that point forward, she treated me differently. From that point forward, I, you know, that's where I found or found again my love for writing and poetry because she took a, a different type of liking to me and, and she, you know, paid attention to me in a more positive way. Um, but that's because of my parents' involvement. She saw that they were involved. She saw that they cared. And she saw that they were nothing like what she pictured. Um, and again, between, you know, when, you know, adding Miss Adler and Mr. Johnson together, you know, just those two teachers alone um, really helped to, you know, help me to think differently about one, how people are perceived to reflect on what that means for the, societal issues and the systemic uh, injustices that happen to people because of how they're perceived, uh, that really changed me. As you went through high school and realized this whole world was opening up um, that had a great deal of opportunity, possibility, what did you ever, what, what did you think, uh, what did you think about Far Rockaway? Like, did you ever think you would w- go back, want to go back? Was it get out as fast and as far as you can? Or how did you kind of process the neighborhood you were from as you as you started to have this other set of possibilities open up for you? So it was definitely get out as fast as I can. So two things. I am utterly and uh, unapologetically proud of Far Rockaway and what Far Rockaway did for me, did to me. Uh, while it was a, a tough experience, it, it shaped who I am. I don't think I would be who I was if it wasn't for Far Rockaway. But at the time, as an adolescent who still had to go home every day, who had to pass by the corner stores and the bodegas and think about what could and would happen to me if I said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, what would happen in the summer times when there wasn't school and there was nothing to do and the trouble we would get into, you know, th- there was just a just real logic um, that occurred. And I'm glad that logic, you know, was instilled in me by way of you know, Mr. Johnson's call for me to look up genocide or my parents' call for me to do the right thing. And so I, I left. I actually graduated high school a year early just to get out of Far Rockaway. And so I went as far as I could possibly go. I went to school in the South. I went to Emory. And when I was there, I realized that, you know, now I'm in a city that has a, a pretty predominant African-American population and there's, there's Black excellence everywhere. And so I go from a rough neighborhood that is predominantly Black and brown to a high school that is predominantly white and Asian and where I see academic yeah. excellence, uh, where I see success, and where I see positive success that that's hailed and and and, and looked up to, and then fast forward to a, a a college in a city, or a university in a city that is predominantly African American, and there's just a success everywhere, and that 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 told me, wow, this is this is a reality. This is a reality that hasn't been shown to me. This isn't the reality that I've seen on TV and that I've listened to in the music, that I've seen in movies, that I've read about, that I've seen on the news. This is 
this contrasts everything that I had experienced the years before. And this is possible. And this is very real. This is visceral. I feel it. I see it. I'm in it. I can be that. And at this point, I am that. And that changed for me. And so my final year at Emory, I took a poetry class, uh, you know, thinking that it was just going to be a, you know, easy class. I'm, you know, graduating, you know, Natasha Trethaway, who was my professor at the time. She saw my writing and my first poem actually was about Far Rockaway. And I, for the first time, felt like I could write authentically about Far Rockaway. And that poem uh, was about just an experience that I had one time sitting on one of the stoops in Far Rockaway. And for her, it was compelling enough that she pulled me aside and, and said that I should look into getting an MFA. And at the time, I found out that it was a Master's of Fine Arts, and in this case, creative writing with a focus on poetry, and uh, looked into a few programs. And it turned out that she was right, that that was the space for me to go to. And so I got a full ride into her alma mater uh, and went there. And, you know, for me at that time, I'm, I'm just now in graduate school exploring. But it was my last year there uh, where one of my colleagues was student teaching uh, at a um, another school, a middle school in uh, this pretty rough neighborhood in Virginia where I was going to school. And, and she asked if I could help do a unit on poetry, given that that was my specialty. And I went into that class uh, with the expectation that I was going to, at that time, do spoken word and wow them with all my words and my wisdom. And in essence, they're the ones who changed my life. And that's when I knew that I wanted to teach. It was in that moment when I saw these black and brown kids looking at me like I was a celebrity, like that was something that they wanted to do and be. And that writing all of a sudden was cool to them. That's when I knew um, that that was my calling. And so I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be a teacher. And so I ended up teaching part-time at a community college uh, in West Memphis, Arkansas, as opposed to Memphis, Tennessee, just to get my foot in the door. So all the best things in interviews are the things you don't plan. And I definitely had not planned this because of all the things that I did know about Derwin going into this interview, I had somehow missed the fact that he has a master's in fine arts. And at this point, I realized, of course, that what I needed to do was to ask him to read one of his poems. It took him a couple minutes to find it, but he did find it. And here's what he read. Say, I could read this one. Uh, It's called God Willing. God Willing, Far Rockaway will let both of us live. Spare our mother from finding our bodies, mangled and bare in abandoned lots, weeds bowed to wan skin. God Willing will survive longer than Ernest, Dwayne, Deshaun did. Our ears will stop ringing from block parties, woofers, and gunshots, and I pray we will make it home tonight, alive. How our names lived past stick and wet cement, longer than spray paint and bodega gate, marker and park bench, I don't know. But we've grown so much taller since the night we spent one winter hunched over the snow, scraping ourselves into existence. Memory. Oh. Hmm. Thank you. Sorry, I'm just a little moved by it and and don't want to just move on. Gosh. So, it's almost like the move to Atlanta for university flipped the, uh, fl- flipped the odds in a way. Like, up to that point, you were absolutely like playing against the odds um, with your neighborhood, getting out of your neighborhood, but even being at the very selective school where still as a, 
as a, someone who's seen as black, um, African descent, in a mostly white Asian environment, it feels like the odds are against you. But you move to Atlanta and you suddenly realize, oh, there's another game in a way where the odds as a, as a black American are actually for excellence and for achievement and accomplishment. And that that was a key kind of um, opening up of possibility. Because it also occurs to me, you know, to do an MFA requires a lot of confidence in yourself. And and the reality is people who do MFAs often come from quite a bit of privilege because they're actually able to take that risk of not knowing what kind of job it will lead to exactly or figuring out what they want to do with their life, that kind of thing. And it seems like your experience had given you the confidence to take that kind of risk and do that kind of exploration that is often it feels like too much of a risk for maybe students of color or kids who come from communities that constantly tell them the odds are against them. I hadn't thought about it in that way. When I think about my peers, they all had their different points of privilege. And arguably, I had my point of privilege too, right? I was there on a full ride and a stipend. Living expenses were were taken care of. And so I did have this space um, to to, to do this. And I can't deny that I felt privileged then because I, I remember uh, the, the in the middle of the program, I was home for the summer and I was on a bus uh, headed somewhere. And one of my uh, friends from the neighborhood got on and he's like, uh, hey, man, like, so what, what's going on? And, you know, what's the latest with you, man? I hear you were in Atlanta. And, you know, there was a, a there was a part of uh, survivor's guilt and, and, and a little bit of shame, even though all my friends were, were proud of me and proud of what I was doing. There was still this this point of shame and feeling of privilege. And so he asked what I was doing now. And there was no way I could say, oh, I'm now in graduate school. And so I remember just saying, oh, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just hanging out in Virginia. Like those were literally my words that I'm just hanging out in Virginia um, because I didn't I didn't have the the guts even to say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm furthering my education and exploring my writing and, and really learning more about my own experiences in Far Rockaway. So you're right there. There was this, this moment of privilege, this, I would call it a, a, a level of entitlement that I wish for all people, right? For it, particularly those who are, who grew up like me or, and I don't mean just in, in a rough neighborhood in Far Rockaway, but, you know, in rural America where they have their own challenges, but from a God-centered place, there's this level of entitlement we should all have to basically have the, the basic human rights um, and, and to have the basic dignity applied to us, um, to have that privilege to just sit back for a second and think and reflect and to, in my case, write and another person's case, paint, you know, what, whatever it is. And we don't all have that. And that certainly is a part of what inspired me to not just want to teach, but then start a school. And so we are at this kind of turning point in your story where you had become a teacher. You were teaching, I guess, at the community college. And and many people continue to be teachers, and it's obviously an absolutely essential vocation. But you made this turn at this point to actually starting a school. So let's talk about the school you started. I'm really interested in talking about what it, what it was called. In particular, the name of it is interesting. And why? What took you on, gave you that turn really towards an entrepreneurial path of actually creating something new rather than just working in a creative and excellent way within the systems that, that were available to you? Yes, I don't know if it was a level of naivete or just, uh, you know, just the... <laughs> just the belief that 
all kids should have that amazing experience that I, I wanted in many ways had just in different pockets when I was growing up. But funny enough, yes, the, the same school district that wouldn't hire me let me start not just one school, but many schools ultimately. So at the time I was at the community college, I recognized that while I was still teaching part-time there, that the adults and the students, uh, some of the high school students who took classes concurrently, they had the same look on their face faces that I had when I was a kid, um, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, wondering, you know, what it was going to be like when I went home and what the experience would look like. And while I was doing that, a community development corporation reached out to me in particular because they were looking to start a school. And I had volunteered there for, I guess, every couple of days a week, I would cross the bridge back to Memphis and and volunteer at the church that started this community development corporation and and tutor kids. And so the person who was uh, in part over that program, uh, she, they tapped her to be the principal of the school they wanted to start. And she said to me, you know, while this is a a great thing and she believes in it, at the time they wanted to do an all-male school and she wasn't interested in leading an all-male school, but she saw how uh, I interacted and, and uh with uh, the the young black men that I taught and, and tutored and, you know, what their experiences were like with me and thought that I might be a great uh, person to lead it. And so the real, the first idea was for me to just be a principal of this school that was an idea. And I, and as, as God would have it, it, I think it came to me the right way. If, if someone would have approached me then and said, hey, I want you to start a school, I would have said, well, I'm not capable of starting a school. I barely teach. <laughs> but because it was this, this idea of leading a school for young black boys, I thought, oh, I can do that. Like, I, I know exactly what it's like to be a young black boy. Uh, and I think I can, I can lead that, uh, that charge. And so I reached out to, uh, Anthony Flynn at the time who was running this community development corporation. And I, you know, heard of him, seen him in a distance from a distance. And so I went to him and I said, Hey, um, so I hear that there's you, you all are looking to start a school and I uh, would love to see if I could help with that and, and maybe even lead. And so I called up uh, Anthony and, and one of the other board members and said, well, I'm working on a PhD in educational psychology. And, you know, at some point I have to put a dissertation together that speaks to what I think you want this school to be. So if you don't mind, uh, I can write the chart application for free. And so I began writing the application and, uh, and then took some more. They gave me some more leadership to then start putting a board together. And I remember, you know, meeting with Anthony and the, the chair of the, the board at the time, uh, Dr. Stacy Spencer. And they said, well, I don't think he should be the principal. Like, I think he should really lead the CDC and really get this school off the ground. And this was all a conversation they had without me, but after they met with me, and so they approached me after that and said, okay, well, we know we were talking about you leading a school, but what would you think about leading the Community Development Corporation? And again, if it were packaged differently, I would have said no, but everything, the way it was designed and orchestrated, it just made perfect sense. This is the first big initiative for the Community Development Corporation. They were about a year old at the time, and it was a school that I was passionate about and believed in and thought the neighborhood needed. I said, yeah. I you know, then took more leadership, obviously, and, and helped to build a board and put the charter application together in, in, in a really short period of time, and uh, we were able to get approved. So where it didn't work in my favor to be a teacher, it worked in my favor when it came to actually starting a school. And uh, we named the school Power Center Academy, which was named after the Community Development Corporation, uh, the Power Center CDC. So we, we opened that school in uh, a decade ago in 2008 with just sixth grade. It was a middle school. One of the themes of 
all the work you've done since is the way that schools need to be embedded um, in, in something bigger. That that it's not actually that as important as a good, a great school is, an excellent school. Um, if it's just a pocket of excellence that isn't connected to other structures of community, it's uh, it's less effective, I guess. And and I'm struck that this school itself was embedded to some extent in a community development corporation. There was a broader vision. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that mattered then and, and even what you've come to learn since about why that matters? Sure. So in to just to paint a picture, in this neighborhood where the school was founded, it's a neighborhood called Hickory Hill in Memphis, Tennessee. And in the late 70s, early 80s, this was one of the places to be if you were a young family looking to you know, start a, a life. Uh, that's where you you, you started. Um, and uh, over the years, uh, the, the community really went south and it, it was in really bad shape. And so by you know 2005 and even earlier, uh, you, you saw a business businesses filing for a bankruptcy and, and families filing for foreclosure and bankruptcy. Uh, and so when we started this school, you know, the first thing that we did was we we went out to see what the community wanted and needed. And so we recognized that we needed to address financial literacy and in the business community. And so, you know, I don't remember much of my high school. It happened so fast, but I do remember that we we lived by the Ephibic Oath, which is leave your city greater than you found it. And that was something that really resonated with me and always has. And so for for me, the, the how might we question was, how might we create a school that would allow for the students to leave the city better than they found it, to leave Hickory Hill better than they found it. And so from the beginning, we had business as a core course, just like math or science. Um, and by the time they're eighth graders, they're you know pitching their own business ideas and running their own businesses. And so this will not be successful if we don't wake up 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and see this community being led by the same students um, that attended the school and running businesses. And, and we're finding that and we're seeing the fruits of our labor and they're, they're emerging now. And, and so Power Center Academy went on to be uh, the highest performing public middle school in the, in the entire state of Tennessee. And it got so many accolades. It's featured in a Wall Street Journal and, and, and so on and so forth. And while that felt great, I had a real moment and stepped back and said, well, I think I'm doing to these kids what was done to me and that they have a great education, but they still have to go home and no one's addressing that. And so uh, around 2010, 2011 or so, um, we came across this old abandoned apartment complex called the Marina Cove. It was about 24 acres of blight. I saw that property and because, maybe again, call it naivete. Uh, I saw the property and said, that's where we're going to put our school. And we're not just going to put a school there, but we're going to put a whole community there. We're going to build a mini city and put it right there. And so we did. We acquired that 20 24 acres of blighted property, another 18 acres of undeveloped land that was landlocked by that property. It was actually almost 19 acres. And um, we put those two together and uh, demoed the bad apartments. And in its place, put Power Center Academy Middle School, a performing arts center, and affordable housing through a partnership with Habitat for Humanity. And directly across the street from that, we eyed the shopping plaza where we put our high school next to a medical clinic and dental clinic. And now uh, that the, the entity that we did this all under, which was the, my next transition 
into, which is Gestalt Community Schools, uh, has now acquired that site fully and is putting an elementary school there. And so you step back in, in this once blighted area, this community that people were afraid to go in um, in the daytime. Now it has life breathed back into it. Um, there's a waiting list for the school. There's a waiting list for people to move back into the community. It's it's growing stronger, right? And you have the, some of the highest performing schools right there in the neighborhood where people, you know, just a decade ago had turned their backs on it. What was the funding model that made this possible? Like, what did it require in terms of resources to to do that kind of holistic <laughs> gestalt, which, you know, uh, a lot of people, of course, know that word, but but it's not an English word. So, it, I mean, I think it means like seeing the whole picture, right? Basically, is that how, say a little bit about that word gestalt. Gestalt is a unified whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. And uh, so around that same time when we were looking to acquire the land, uh, Power Center was growing, uh, two things were happening. We needed to figure out the the business model for this. Um, this was something that we hadn't seen done before. And so we just combined the two, the idea of community and school and, and making it such that you wouldn't know, um, you know, which one was greater than the other. And, you know, it's truly, you know, the whole is greater than the sum. Um, um, of its parts. And so um, in 2011, that's when Gestalt was formed. Um, the same year we were starting Power Center Academy High School. And so what we did is we then put Power Center under the umbrella of Gestalt uh, and then continued to build out this model for this mixed-use development under the auspices of the Power Center Community Development Corporation and Gestalt. So while at that time there wasn't money pouring into what we wanted to do, we were able to find different sources of funding. So we were able to find HUD dollars for the demolition of the bad property because we were building affordable housing. We're able to uh, find new market tax credits to go towards the the act or the development of the school building, which basically brought that you know down to a million dollar endeavor. Um, we were able to believe it or not get FEMA funding to build a performing arts center because it doubles as a tornado shelter. Um, and so when there's not a tornado, it's a performing arts center. So we just hope that there are no more tornadoes. Um, but again, the way God works, right? In 2008, the year we opened Power Center Academy. Right before we opened it, a tornado came through Hickory Hill. And so we had a case to make for why Hickory Hill needed a tornado shelter and why we needed a performing arts center. Uh, And so we were able to pull together a myriad of sources of funds and and, or even to acquire the the blighted property. um, It's, you know, this is just the, the... you know, it was a big moment of faith for me. There were many moments of, you know, of really putting my my faith where my mouth was. It all worked out that we were able to acquire the land for practically nothing and then get all the other incentives and then uh, raised about $5 million philanthropy to go towards the rest of it. Uh, let's talk for a moment about, um, you've mentioned faith, uh, the faith that was required at different points. Um, at Praxis, we don't think about entrepreneurship as Christians as sort of narrowly, like we don't usually use the phrase Christian entrepreneurship, like an adjective. Uh, we think of Christians doing entrepreneurship, but what difference has it made to you um, at key moments to be a follower of Christ, to have faith in God? Uh, when, when does that most shape what you're doing? So I went from Gestalt Community Schools to uh, the had another vision around what it meant to do that kind of work at scale. Um, so not just in Memphis, but um, even out in and outside of Memphis. And so, and of course, you all know now I was a psych major in college. So I went from Maslow or from Gestalt Community Schools to now Maslow uh, Development Inc. Maslow being a high, the high hierarchy of needs and recognizing that basic needs to be met before. Yeah. Um, 
needs need to get met before reaching the point of self-actualization. And so for us, it's a real estate development company that does that. And, you know, just like what we experienced with Gestalt and with the Power Center Academy and doing that mixed use development, there's so many roadblocks that come in um, and, and so many, uh, so many uh, forces at work uh, against us to make that happen, especially if we're trying to change a narrative around uh, how black and brown people can live and thrive. We're trying to change a narrative around education. We're trying to change a narrative around holistic development and community engagement. Uh, and so with those barriers, one of our core values at Maslow is, is optimism. And my personal core value is dogged optimism. And as a, as a Christian, as an entrepreneur, um, I have to have that dogged optimism. I have to be able to see that these things are possible um, because our kids and families are depending on that. And there's a mom that's waiting to open an envelope right outside of the grocery store, or right outside of the apartment to see whether or not his or her kid or, you know, got into Power Center Academy or got into a school like that. And so what can we do as Christians, as entrepreneurs to really fight through all the barriers that would prevent the millions of families that have that or want to have that experience. And I don't think there's no way that any of that would have happened if I didn't have that faith. Um, and the beauty of it all is there's no way I could ever claim to have done any of that by myself. Um, there's, there's no way. I'm not smart enough. I'm not shrewd enough. I'm not, I'm not wise enough. I'm not experienced enough. Anything that I've ever done well, I've done it with with help, right? Anything I've ever failed at, I've likely done it by myself. <laughs> but you know, when I think about just what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be an entrepreneur, like I, I go by that faith. And that, that means, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to romanticize it or glorify it. Like it, it does get hard. I mean, there are sleepless nights. There are moments you feel crushed. There are moments you think it's not going to work. There are moments it's impossible, um, but you just have to fight through it. And so, you know, that's what we did when I was at the Power Center at Gestalt. And, and now that's what we're doing at Maslow Development Inc. You're making me reconsider something. I've been somewhat um, averse to the word optimism sometimes because I think it can imply... Oh, a kind of, well, for one thing, it can imply a kind of naivete, you know, like this is the best of all possible worlds. Everything's getting better. It can, it can be naive. And then I think sometimes it can be sort of mechanical in the sense that it's this idea that somehow the world is wired to come out well. So we just need to be optimistic and hang on. And I've always preferred, you know, this, of course, deep Christian word hope to it. But when you add the, well, two things. When you when you locate that word optimism in your experience <laughs> and in the realities that you're confronting that aren't that don't lend themselves to naivete and aren't just automatically going to work out. And then you add the adjective dogged optimism, like this sense that you know, relentless trust that there is something better and that God is at work. It feels deeper than I often think of that word feeling. You know, it strikes me what you've done is you, as I look at, at the sequence of moves you've made and initiatives you've taken, you keep adding layers of, uh, in a way, of complexity, but also of really getting the whole gestalt, the whole picture of what flir how flourishing happens. And it feels like you're just pursuing that further with maybe some new things. So I agree, while it, I oftentimes have to step back and make sure that as we're looking at new ventures that they do align and that they do build and don't you know, split apart. So the idea around that is how do you create a, a social impact investment fund that actually uh, 
accelerates the work, right? Because as I described the, the work that I did with that first development in Memphis, you know, that was cobbling together a lot of capital in, from different ways in public and private. Um, and so while that was good and, and while we were able to successfully do that, the reality uh, is that that takes forever to do. And if you're going to do it at scale, um, you really miss out on a lot of opportunities and a lot of communities that need that um, work now. Uh, and so the idea was to, to really lift up this, this social impact investment fund to do that. And so, you know, that is happening alongside the work at Maslow. And so we have at Maslow in terms of a, a, what's on the horizon, what we call our lighthouse project. And our lighthouse project um, is a development in Memphis, in the city limits, that literally sits in between an affluent community and uh, a not so affluent community. So Hickory Hill and as an underserved community and another community just on the other side. And what we're doing, um, our thesis is that we could literally and figuratively bridge the economic divide by building something in the middle and by building something that is holistic, that is centered in learning, but that includes the housing, that includes the health and wellness, and that includes workforce, so your maker spaces and co-working spaces. Um, and how, do, how might we do that with the two communities on either side? Um, and at the table? How do we bring them into a conversation and combine human-centered design with community organizing to tease out what they truly want and need and then to build that and to create something that is equitable, um, that is multi-X, so not just, you know, multi-generational, but multi-denominations, multi, you know, from an economic standpoint, something that really speaks to who God is, right? That, you know, God wants to serve all people in all ways and and wants to do it equitably. How do we design and create something that that does that. Um, and so that is our lighthouse project. And we believe if we do that well, that uh, that is something that could really scale how developments are done moving forward, not just for us, um, but for communities all over the world. Wow. It strikes me that um, you keep adding pieces. It's not just that you keep that you add pieces to an existing puzzle, but you keep like reframing what the puzzle is. And I'm just thinking about the distance in time and kind of uh, scale from that classroom you were in as a, uh, maybe maybe it was when you were still in graduate school, when you first walked into that group of, of you know, young uh, kids as the, as the teacher of, of writing and as the poet. As you've moved up that scale, you're no longer just teaching a classroom. You're trying to create a whole, I mean, really a whole infrastructure, like at a national level, maybe even beyond national at some point, for that kind of experience to happen. But you are no longer in that classroom as often, obviously, or I don't know how often you get to be in that kind of place. What uh, kind of what's gained and what's lost as you have done the scaling of your life and in a sense, ambitions and impact and influence from the moment when you were able to just be in a classroom with some very specific kids at a specific moment in time. So for me, what I try to do is call out the moments I had as a kid and I call out the moments I've experienced in the classroom, the moments I've experienced in the community, um, so that even though I lack the, the proximity on the daily level that I had, I don't lose the, the memory. There's a, a, there's a, a piece that's in my house um, that was done by an artist, uh, Lester Merriweather, an amazing artist, um, and, and one of his mediums is collage. And so um, he put together this piece that, that speaks 
to one of my favorite poems um, by Borges, which is Street with a Pink Corner Store. And the, the last first paragraph uh, says, big, long suffering street. You are the only music my life has understood. And so he, you know, based on that framing, as well as my upbringing in New York, he put together this, this, this 10 foot a piece that sits in, in my living room as a reminder to me by design, a reminder that doesn't allow me to forget from where I came, but also allows me to to romanticize and see a better a better picture. Um, and so um, the you know for me that is another level of proximity. The artist in me needs that as a level of proximity just as much as I need to step foot in a classroom from time to time or step foot into a, a neighborhood that that most people don't want to step into. But I could never forget Far Rockaway. I'll never forget Far Rockaway. I'll never forget those experiences. And so that also resonates with me and allows me to then step back and say, well, how might we create a community that people won't forget, but for all the right reasons? And that keeps me grounded. That keeps me proximate. And that allows me to think about the work at scale in a different type of way. It works and it's worth doing if it's anchored in that kind of memory. And I wonder if that's the only way for it to really honor the kid, you know, so there's there's a seventh grader now in any number of neighborhoods that you're connected with who's wondering what his life is going to turn out like. And like you serve him well to the extent you yourself remember being that seventh grader. Exactly. And just like my seventh grade teacher, Miss Adler, just like she had a framing about what I could be and should be based on what I did. Yeah. You know, I want to be very mindful and careful not to uh, over design something for a community or for families that might not be what they need and want. And it's why we co-design with as Maslow. It's why we co-design and develop with communities. You know, there's, you know, there's that that level of, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the compassion, but um, when you when you intercede for someone, when you intercede on someone's behalf, it's not the thing you want for them that you should be interceding for, right? It's it's what God wants for them, right? And you're, you're trying to tease that out. And so I want to be careful, whether it's through Maslow, whether it's through any of the ventures that I had done or will do, I want to be careful not to uh, overdo or overthink what it is that a community wants and needs or that an, what an individual wants and needs, but to really intercede on their behalf and to, to call out that thing that God wants for them. Derwin Sisnat, maybe this is a key part of the redemptive journey. It's a story of ever greater attention, not just to what you can do with your life or even just what you can do for other people, but what God is doing in the world and how you can be part of that. And it's about addressing all the complexity in the systems that surround us that need to be restored, yet also staying connected to that seventh grader who's trying to figure out what his story will be. If you want to know more about Praxis and what we do, visit us at praxislabs.org, praxislabs, all one word, .org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It's one of the best ways you can let other people know about the show. And we'd also like to address your questions, and we're actually preparing a bonus episode based entirely on the questions you have, so you can leave those in your review, or you can visit us at podcast.praxislabs.org to leave us comments and questions, as well as pick up show notes and transcripts. The Redemptive Edge is produced by Mary Elizabeth Goodell, who in her day job is community manager for Praxis, with executive production by the multi-talented Scott Kaufman, our partner for content. 
We're very grateful to Narrativo for their editing and production help. I'm Andy Crouch. Thanks for joining us on The Redemptive Edge. Mm-hmm.